Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 65 of Caro Pop. Our first live Caro Pop event takes place Wednesday, January 18th, when I'll be interviewing actor David Pasquese from Veep Lodge 49 and the TJ and Dave Improv Show. It'll be at the club space in Evanston, and general admission seats are $12 a piece. If you're in the Chicago area on January 18th, don't miss it. Our Carol Pop guest this week makes his return to the podcast after appearing on one of 2022's most popular episodes, Mastering Engineer Kevin Gray. When we talked last February, he described his work from the early 70s through the 2010 opening of his own facility, Coherent Audio, in the San Fernando Valley. He built his own electronics to get the sounds he wants, and when he remasters a recording using the original analog tapes, he thinks his version is likely to sound better than an original pressing of the album. If you read online forums focused on vinyl and audio fidelity, you know that many people agree. When I was in Los Angeles over the summer, I visited Gray's studio where he does his mastering and cuts his lacquers. The standalone studio is in a residential neighborhood and he showed me the adjacent house where he's converted the living room into a recording studio. It's modeled on the Hackensack, New Jersey home studio where Rudy Van Gelder recorded legendary Blue Note and Prestige jazz albums. Gray will soon release an album by saxophonist Kirsten Edkins that he recorded there. Since Gray and I last spoke, I've been buying a lot of vinyl albums, and a disproportionate number of them have been mastered by him, usually with a sticker touting his work. I picked up his cut of Joe Jackson's Night and Day on Intervention Records, and it sounds amazing. I'd never heard the percussion pop like that. Also, I've been buying more jazz albums, and Gray has been remastering Blue Note's Tone Poet and Classic Vinyl series, as well as Kraft Records' Jazz Dispensary releases. The Blue Note Classic Vinyl titles, which are all analog and sound great, include Art Blakey and the Jazz Messenger's Monin, Kenny Burrell's Midnight Blue, Dexter Gordon's Go, and Lee Morgan's The Sidewinder. The higher-end Tone Poet releases have included Grant Green's The Latin Bit and Feelin' the Spirit, Freddie Hubbard's Breaking Point, as well as the mono and stereo versions of John Coltrane's Blue Train. Those dueling Blue Train releases sent me down a train of thought. I wanted to know from Gray which version he preferred, the mono or stereo. Does Gray like hearing, for instance, the sax in the left speaker and the drums in the right, as opposed to everything in the middle? And I wanted to know more. How are those albums recorded? Are there time periods when mono is likely to be superior to stereo? Why do the instruments feel more spread out in some stereo recordings than others? What accounts for a recording's soundstage, that sense of where the instruments are in the room? Is that something that happens in the mixing or the mastering stage or both? Gray has answers to all of this. We also discussed the mono versus stereo of some albums he has not remastered, including Beatles projects such as the recent Revolver Box. Does Gray consider updated versions of Beatles albums to be revisionist history? Other topics include whether electronically processed stereo is ever any good, whether it's ever a good idea to have high-res digital as part of the production chain, why it's better for an album to be pressed relatively close to home soon after the lacquer is cut, which European pressing plant he tries to avoid, the differences between Blue Note's Tone Poet and classic vinyl releases, the funkier early 70s recordings he has mastered for Jazz Dispensary, some of which have been released through the Vinyl Me Please record club, how many albums Gray mastered in 2022, and why it was his busiest year yet. Please enjoy this ear-opening conversation with Kevin Gray.
How have you been? I've been great. Uh, I've been great. It's been a stressful year. It was an amazing year. I mean, I, I, it's the busiest year I've had by far. I mean, it's just crazy. So what dictates how busy it is? It's just the, the clients calling you all the time. And I mean, are you turning it's just, stuff just down? orders? I mean, I've cut so many more records. I mean, I probably cut close to 400 titles this year. You know, normally I do about 300. <laughs> so yeah. Coincidentally, I think that's a, the number of albums I've bought mastered by you this year. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess that's good to hear. Every time I look, it's like another, you know, master by Kevin Gray. And it's because part of it is that I've sort of gotten the bug since visiting your studio and just sort of trying to expand my horizons that I've been listening to more of these, you know, blue notes and the jazz uh-huh. dispensary and, and all of these other ones. And you just happen to have cut a lot of them. And, you know, when you go on these message boards, they're like, Oh my God, this Kevin Gray, you know, you have to pick this up because uh, it sounds amazing and it's a great price. And so I'm like, okay, I'll do that. And uh, so I'm listening to a lot more and I feel like my ears have become a little more attuned to some of the the differences in sort of the presentation and, uh, so, so yeah, so it's cool. So you've, you've done a lot of great work that I can hear as well. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, it's nice to be appreciated. A lot of them are, uh, you know, stereo and a lot of them are mono mm-hmm. and blue train came out in both and they weren't this, and they weren't the same record. Like, uh, you know, my favorite things was, uh, uh-huh. so I'm like, should I get one or should I get the other? Well, and my favorite things, that was also a separate stereo, a separate mono tape, but it was, but they packaged them together. They didn't. Oh, oh I see. I see. I see. I yeah. was saying that that, that one, I, when I bought the the one record, I got both mixes and I was able to compare, but the blue train actually required a choice of purchasing power. <laughs> um, the way it worked out was actually that I bought the the stereo one and then my local uh, record store that I love squeeze box. I'll give them a plug here. They, they ended up having one that was returned because there was like a little Nick in one of the um, tracks. And so I bought, I got that one too and i was able to compare them but i'm curious which which do you prefer i think i prefer the mono a little bit um believe it or not i do too i know i'm I'm really pegged as a stereo guy but on that particular title i do like the mono a little better so so this is what i want to get into is is that like when is the mono better and when is the stereo better i think that the reason i like the mono better on that is just because like on one hand it's i'm learning all these you know phrases that i really didn't used to use these terms like soundstage uh-huh. and which you know sort of instinctively when you listen to a stereo album and you can sort of feel like whether it's sort of filling like a lot of the room or a little bit of the room whether it feels broad or narrow right um you know there's some of them where you feel like the band is kind of like clustered close together and somewhere you feel like you know coltrane is way over here on the left and the drums are way over here on the right and you know, I don't tend to listen on headphones, which I think that would bother me more. If I'm in a room, it depends where in the room I am. Right. Um, but I felt like the separation on the stereo, I had it had a broader sound stage, but it also was less punchy because Coltrane was just coming out of the left speaker. Okay. Well, normally, normally he would. Normally he would because right. Rudy would normally put the sax on the left, the the, the, the primary guy. Um, okay. Let me launch into this then from my perspective a little bit. Until 1958, there wasn't any, there weren't any stereo records. But people, I think, started recording in 56 or 57 with that anticipation. And and Rudy was kind of an early guy to start experimenting with stereo. And I mean, that record came out in 59, right? So he'd, yeah. he'd been doing it. He'd been doing it for a while. But that is still what we generally consider to be one of Rudy's early stereo recordings. 
And the thing was, he was, you know, it was an experimental thing. It was a brand new thing. And um, I, I guess he felt that it sounded more stereo if he put everything left and right. So one of the things about that stereo recording is there's really nothing in the middle. Everything's left and right. That's one of the things I don't like about it that much. The other thing is, uh, you know, it's considered sacrilegious to criticize Rudy. So let's not call this a criticism. Let's just call it an experimentation. But he was kind of messing with the uh, reverb on. I don't know if it was the overall reverb or the reverb on the sax, but but he did it. And it's on both the mono and the stereo. But for me, it's more noticeable on the stereo and a little distracting. I, I don't hmm. I, I can play the mono and I, you know, I, I don't even pay attention to it. So, you, yeah, you can hear the reverb level go up and then he brings it down and then he brings it up and then he brings it down and, and not at particular intervals where I would expect, you know. What changed in stereo over those years from 59 onward? You know, he's sort of to the left, but but did other parts of it become more centered like the drums? Did he did the balance change? Did not he the get drums. He, usually, he usually kept the drums on the right, uh, but he would put the bass and the piano in the center. OK. And so that that became kind of the normal stereo. Now. You know, remember that was recorded at Hackensack and, you know, by the end of 59, he moved to Inglewood Cliffs. And so that that gave us a sound change. Um, but he had already pretty much set up his sort of his sort of rules for stereo. And so he kept that going after um, he moved to Inglewood Cliffs. But he had not really fully developed that when he did Blue Train. It was kind of an early stereo. So are there other stereo albums from that era that you prefer to the mono? Oh, yeah. Uh, several. Um, but I can't name them off the top of my head. I, um, I'd have to kind of go back and look. Um, but it's not a rule like that, that up to like 59, you go no. mono. But after that, you go stereo or something like that. It's still. Well, you know, it, it, that's the other interesting thing that that Ron Rambach and Joe Harley discovered when they started the Music Matters series that they didn't know um, at first was that um, there were no mono tapes after 59. Everything was recorded in stereo and they just folded the stereo down to mono after that. Hmm. So all monos after that are fold downs? Yes. Yes. There's no mono tapes. Interesting. Not, not after that, but after 59, after the end right. of 59. Yeah. Now, does that mean that they're they're sort of mixing it in mono and or that it's just OK, let me let me explain this. This this is so bizarre. I didn't quite believe it at first. But then after I started doing my own recording, um, it made sense because, you know, I have a setup kind of like Ingle or kind of like uh, Hackensack. Um, so anyway, here, here's here's the deal. And I, I just find this flabbergasting. They he did not have stereo monitoring. Hackensack at all. He didn't have stereo monitoring until he moved to, you know, built a new studio in Inglewood Cliffs. So you could say he was kind of operating blind for stereo, but since he was just, you know, moving the panning the mics left, center, right, or left, right. in, in that case, um, listening in mono was sufficient. You know, if, if the mix sounded good in mono, um, it, it should sound fine in stereo. It just have separation, you know, right. honesty, but most people go, no, that can't be. He had to be listening in stereo. But he, you know, everybody who was familiar with him and what he did said, no, that was not the case. He might have converted a old pair of, you know, Army Air Corps headphones, which is what he used for monitoring to stereo so that he could, you know, take a quick reference in stereo. I don't know. But he only had one speaker, one Altec speaker, you know, over the control room window there or to the side. And, and that's how he monitored. 
So, um, oh, I wanted one other thing I wanted to mention about that is um, now here is, I think, a real key to the Van Gelder sound. Um, and that is when he kind of got past Blue Train and he was putting piano and bass in the center, drums on the right, extra horns on the right, but the main horn on the left. Um, that, that kind of became his standard for everything. Uh, at that point, the, 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 he had something in the center. If you think about it, you know, anything that's mixed to the center, and I mean, it's either a pan pot or in, in this case, a switch that, that, you know, moves the mic to left, right, or a combination of both equally. When you think about it, though, if you have something on the left only or on the right only in that setup, it's going to be lower in volume than the stuff mixed to the center. Right. Right. By 3 dB. So you automatically have 3 dB more gain on the bass and the piano than you do on what's on the sides. So when he's listening in mono, he's making the balance for mono. And that's why the stereo balance, you know, people say, you know, sometimes uh, the sax sounds almost too loud or. Or, uh, or or the drums sound almost too loud. You know, you get a lot of different feedback from from various forums and stuff. But think about it. He's monitoring in mono. And so the balance is for the mono. But, you know, if you put it in in stereo, the piano and the uh, and the uh, bass, which would be up, he's compensating for by listening in mono. So he's putting up the stuff on the sides louder so than what's in the center. So does that mean that when you pl- you play the stereo, the sax sounds louder, or the sax sounds quieter? Sa- sax sounds louder, and the piano. You know, everybody talks about it, that muted piano sound that he had. Well, that's part of the muted piano sound. It was just mixed three dB lower than the stuff on the sides. Right, because he's compensating for when it goes and in stereo, and he's and he's not actually hearing it at the right. time. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so bizarre. It almost defies belief, but. That's the fact. <laughs> when you're listening to something and, you know, some like the sax is to the left, sometimes mm-hmm. it sounds like it's like to the left and sometimes it sounds like it's way to the left. I mean, and it's talking about panning, I guess, but like, how do you, sometimes right. the separation feels more dramatic than others. Okay. And, and again, it's yeah. that sound stage thing where sometimes it sounds like whatever has been done at some stage, whether it's the mastering or the mixing, you know, one instrument is like way over there as opposed right. to just like kind of right. coming right out of the front of your speaker or something. Right. Well, in, in the case of, I, I can really speak a lot for Van Gelder and, and, and Blue Note, well, and also Prestige and the other labels that he mastered for, but he would pan the sides in when he would master it. So on an RVG mastered recording, um, there is not going to be as much separation as there would be, say, if 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 Joe Harley and I do it, because I don't even have the ability in my mastering console to pan the sides in. So what's on the tape as far as left and right is what's there. He did that to make it so that it was it would have less tendency to skip. Monoral um, is is a little bit uh, more forgiving in that way than stereo, and so by panning the sides in, you're making it a little more mono. Hmm. Um, and, and he would do that on everything. Contemporary apparently did that on a lot of stuff, too, according to John Koenig, Lester's son. I don't know. I, I don't hear it as much on the contemporary records because I've got a couple originals. But on the Blue Notes, on the, the Rudy Master, it's, it's pretty noticeable. So if you're taking your master of the stereo Blue Train and then you go back to the original Rudy Master, is yours going to be panned wider then? 
Well, see, that's a that's an unusual case because there's nothing in the center. So it's all left. Right. And right. So it's I mean, yeah, it'll be more mono, but I'm not quite sure how that's going to affect. Yeah, it's, it's going to pull in the soundstage for sure. I mean, yeah. there are other there are other Rudy Van Gelder masters that you've redone. In general, yours are going to be broader in the yes. soundstage. Yes, by definition. I mean, it's just I have no way to change that. Is it a function of the the original recording as opposed yeah. to y- you going in and saying, you know what, I want to move the drums a little bit over to the left over here or something? Yeah, no, I, I can't. I can't do that. But the other thing I should answer to that you kind of brought up is it does vary a bit from record to record, even records that Rudy recorded because of how many microphones he had up. Uh, in, in other words, you know, a septet versus a quartet. Um, and there's going to be more what's known as leakage, which is, all, you know, all of the mics are tending to pick up everything that's happening. They're going to pick up more of what's close to them. And you can control leakage in that way by positioning the mics. But you're going to get more leakage when you get more instruments in there. And it's a little harder to control. When I did my first album, uh, you know, set up like a Blue Note, um, I, I was very aware of the fact that I was getting some drum leakage you know, the drums, are, I have panned full right, but I can hear a little bit of it on the left. So there's other mics, you know, that are panned to the left that are picking that up. And I thought, oh, boy, that's, uh, you know, and then I go back and I listen to the Van Gelders and they sound identical. Yeah, right. The same issue. And I wasn't as, as aware of it as when I'm trying to record it, you know. Yeah. I mean, the drums are not in this isolated glass booth and, uh, no. you know, everyone, I mean, like people are in the same room, basically, right? They're all in the same room. Yeah, there's there's no isolation at all. I mean, he didn't even put up baffles. Did the recording change a lot when they, he moved to stereo also? Did they start using a lot more microphones or putting the no. microphones in different no, places? No, he was still he was still pretty much using one microphone per instrument. Um, that didn't change until um, when he when he went to Inglewood Cliffs, he went for an extra mic on the kick drum on on the uh, drums. Um I sure didn't hear any need for that when I recorded my album with just one mic on the drums. And I know a lot of other uh, great jazz records were done with one mic on drums, but he he found the need to have a kick drum mic so he could kind of uh, control that separately. You've talked about how the, I think it was 54 to 64, you consider the golden age of recording. Yeah. And uh, my memory of it is that it was because they were using so few tracks on it. So you're not overdubbing and losing or, or you're, yeah, not, you're mean, not mixing you're using, down so much. So you're using either one or two tracks, whether it's mono or stereo, and that's it. Now, there were some exceptions to that. Columbia, I think, recorded, yeah, I know for a fact they recorded Kind of Blue. And I don't know about Take Five or, or uh, a Time Out, but I, I know Kind of Blue was recorded three track, and then they mixed that down to two track. And having not heard the three track, I don't know how this, the, the, what different, you know, maybe the third track was just for Miles Trumpet or, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Right. And Hackensack West is what we've been talking about, where you're recording your own version of these blue note, this blue note setup that you've recreated in your home, which is attached to your studio where you do your mastering and engineering and everything. Right. Um, Are you recording those on two track as well then? Yeah, it's going straight, straight to two track to my uh, Studer C37 um, machine. Mm -hmm. Mixed live, you know. Is there anything that's different from the way Rudy had it set up? I mean, you obviously have newer equipment. Well, I have my own electronics for most of it. Uh, not the microphones, but the mixer and and my disc cutting system is all unique. Sure. Um, but um, and I'm using a lot of the same microphones that, 
that Rudy used. Uh, you, you know, U47, uh, I'm using on sax and piano, and, and he did that, and you, know, you can see that in pictures, particularly like on the cover of, uh, of Blue Train. Um, or maybe not the cover, but that shot, if you see the whole shot that became the cover, you, there's a Neumann U47 right there by the saxophone. Well, of course, it's a different tape machine. You know, a, a, C, a C37 has a different sound than an Ampex. So, you know, it's, it's as I've said before, I'm not really trying to emulate Rudy. I'm kind of using Rudy as, as a guide, but I'm also using contemporary and, and, uh, and Columbia also, you know, their recordings. Are are other people still recording with just two tracks as opposed to, you know, 24 and 72 or whatever people have at their <laughs> well, disposal right now? They call it direct to two track recording. And yeah, they, they're especially in the jazz realm. There have been quite a few albums in the last 40 years recorded direct to two track um, or, or to two track digital, you know, but, um, you know, to stereo digital, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it, I wouldn't say it's the norm at all. Most people are recording multi-track and mixing it down. I mean, that's kind of the standard. Yeah. I mean, as, as a rock fan and someone who's very into the Beatles, I, I sort of followed that evolution of them sort of getting more and more tracks as they went on. So Sgt. Oh, sure. Pepper was like two, four tracks that were rigged together. Um, you know, revolver, I think was just a four track and mm -hmm. you know, this, this recent revolver box came out and it was basically the first sort of stereo mix that wasn't just you know, some instruments to the left and vocals to the right and vice versa. Um, and they sort of digitally pulled everything out to sort of re uh -huh. to put it together. And it sounds sort of, and it sounds good, but it, but definitely when you listen to the original stereo pressing of it, it just jumps out of the speaker more probably because you don't have that digital manipulation going on. I would guess. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I you know, <laughs> I hate to say it. I'm not trying to be a snob, but I just don't care about all of these Beatles redos. You know, it's it's sort of like reinventing history, rewriting history, revisionist history. Uh, I, you know, I, I love the originals. I, I play my parlophones if I want to hear what a Beatles record sounds like, you know. You know, the most interesting thing for it is just the, you know, the other takes and things that have been released, which is different from oh, yeah. here's the definitive version of Revolver. And yeah, I mean, the, the versions of Revolver I had were already pretty good, but it seems like the, it seems like it's the mono versions, like the mono box. That's the most sort of triple A, um, you know, Beatles thing that's come out. And I think it's right. also the most coveted because it really was done from the original analog as opposed to that stereo box and those reissues, which were the digital versions that they'd also used for the cds and so right, right. maybe at some point they go back and do a triple a stereo box and then everyone will go crazy and spend another thousand dollars on that one when the first cds came out yeah um they remixed revolve rubber soul and help true the and yeah. Those, yeah. those two albums and they remixed those because they were panned so hard right left so you know like what goes on you'd hear and it would just be like ringo on one side of john and paul on the other well that's, and, that's and one so the, story I've, I've heard that the tape there were problems with the tape oh that might be true yeah but, and that's why they had to remix but anyway you know what was very strange and i don't know how it happened but uh canada uh they're box or or their their versions of the Beatles CDs that they put out for some reason they had their own masters of both huh. soul and help and they put those out instead of using the you know, the ones blessed by George Martin that had been remixed so the only way you could actually get the original i mean it was probably a generation removed but to me for a long time that was my go to on CD for both uh rubber soul and and uh, help 
And it, and it didn't bug you the whole, everything divided so much. Like you, you don't just say, well, I'm just going to listen to the mono. Yeah. And uh, see, that's, that's where I got pegged as being a, an only stereo guy, which is not true. But in the case of the Beatles, you know, I know the whole story about how much more work went into the monos and yada, 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 yada. But I still, my go-to has always been the stereos for the Beatles. I mean, that's what I grew up with. Uh, I can sure understand the problems with doing the first two records in stereo because they were never intended to be released in stereo. Right. Um, and they were recorded what they what the British even called twin track, meaning vocals on one channel and, and music on the other, you know, the instruments. And Capital screwed that up because when they sent them the tape, which would have a note like a Rudy Van Gelder, where it would say, you know, fold 50 50 to, to mono, they didn't. They put put it out in sort of fake stereo, you know, it, it was never intended to be released that way. Right. I think those probably those first Beatles records I bought, the early ones, they would say on there, electronically reprocessed for stereo. They weren't really, but on, on those first two, they just put out the tape. The, the way that was sent to them without following the instructions on what, you know, what George Martin had asked them to do. Does the electronically reprocessed for stereo, is that ever a good sign on a record? Never, never. There are devices that came out in the in the mid to late 70s analog and then in the 90s digital that will make a much more convincing electrically reprocessed stereo from mono. But what they were doing in those days was basically one of two things, either putting more bass on one channel and more trouble on the other, which is just horrible sounding, or they would take like a graphic equalizer and and set them with the knobs reversed from each other. So if, if one frequency is going up on one channel, it'd go down on the other and they'd go across the spectrum that way. So at least there's a little more uh, finesse to it. And uh, you can kind of get fooled for a second. You go, well, it doesn't sound mono, but it's you know, not that good. <laughs> and it's, and there, I assume there's some degradation of the sound when you're manipulating it and pulling out those frequencies and stuff. Well, if they do equal amounts of boost and cut, you can combine it back to mono and it should sound pretty close to the mono, but um, yeah, I, I, I avoid those things like the plague in, in all realms jazz classical right you know pop what was interesting about some of the remixes and again it's sort of the messing with history part but the sergeant pepper uh which was sort of the first of those kind of retrospective mixes what they basically did is they basically did a stereo mix based on the mono mix because uh -huh. there were ch there are choices made yes. in the mono mix that are really cool but it's still yes. in mono but like there's this phasing on the um the vocals in the course of losing the sky with diamonds um the one that gets me the most is that she's leaving home is at the right speed and they slowed it down for the stereo for no reason and i always found it kind of draggy and then when you hear it in the mono version you're like oh that sounds like paul singing and it doesn't like wednesday it says wednesday moon yeah. anyway um <laughs> having that sort of aesthetic you know approach to the stereo mix is like a nice thing to have even though there's obviously you know other sacrifices that you're making because to come up with that thing so that's right whereas like i don't think anyone would argue that like the white album mono mix is the one to have it Really? I don't think I don't think people would argue. Oh, that. oh yeah. I, I find that the weirdest one to me. I mean, because they I, were they were fully in stereo at that point, you know. Yeah. I um, a friend of mine gave that to me on a bootleg CD back uh, many, many years ago. And I listened to it quite a bit. And it's like, eh, you know, I don't hear anything that really rocks my world on Sergeant Pepper. Yes. I mean, that's the one where I can say. I can hear the extra work that went into the mono that wasn't there on the stereo. You can hear it. But that being said, 
I'd rather listen to the opening of the record where it sounds like the crowd's kind of around you rather than in mono where everything's just smashed together. So I, right. you know, exactly. I don't know. Actually the, the one mono, the, the one late Beatles mono that absolutely blew my, my mind was the, uh, the, the revolution single in mono uh-huh. is like, it's so much more. I actually still have the than, 45. <laughs> It's a, it's a, that was the one where when I got the mono box and I was comparing stuff, it was like the the old Max L ads where you're sitting in this, you see the guy sitting in the chair with his hair blown yeah, back. Yeah. That yeah. was because I'd, I'd put on the stereo version first and I'm like, oh, this sounds good. And I put on the mono version and that guitars are so loud and nasty yeah. in that mix. And, and I don't know that, you know, maybe they could have gotten that effect on the stereo and they just didn't mix it like that. But that's one where I was like, wow, the mono, the mono on that one is it's great. So funny, but yeah, you know, Re- Revolution is probably in my top five. Uh, the 45 version is in my top five Beatles songs of all time. It's it's right up there with all the, the beautiful Beatles tunes. I, I, I'll never forget. I ran out, ran right out and bought the, the, the 45 because they were playing Hey Jude on the radio. And I thought, oh, that's a great song. And it is a great song to this day. But I remember flipping it over and going, man, I like this one even better. <laughs> it is one of the great, if not the greatest double A sides. I mean, Strawberry Fields, oh, yeah. Penny Lane is up there. and But Hey Jude Revolution, you can't really be and i always i always like to do this i don't this is just my beatles geekery coming out where i sort of think about like the white album and sort of the narrative around the white album and how at that point in the band still were like having releasing singles separate from the albums and hey jude and revolution are they're they're white album songs they're from the same sessions yeah and i always think if you'd taken if side four had started with revolution instead of revolution one, and then you put, Hey Jude, where revolution number nine is, <laughs> you know, would people still look at that? Like, Oh, this is like this album where they're all doing their own thing because those are like two of the greatest band performances. Those Absolutely. guys ever did. I couldn't agree with you more. Now, one, one other point I wanted to make about something you said about multi-tracking. Um, I wouldn't try to record a rock album straight to two track. You know, it, it can be done. I mean, if you listen to the Sheffield direct to discs, they did a gorgeous job on that with like Thelma Houston and pressure cooker. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I've not heard it. Oh, that's an amazing sounding recording. And it was recorded, you know, direct to the lacquer two track. Um, you know, there's only two channels there. Um, but you know, most rock albums, they require multi-tracking just to get all the effects and everything that you're trying to do. And uh, trying to do that in real time to two track would be pretty impossible. I have mentioned that, one thing I'd like to do an album of would be like Rockabilly, where it's just four players and a vocalist. Um, that I could manage to two track. But I, um, I bet if you got like the Richard Thompson trio in in there, it would sound pretty fantastic because you just good. have, you know, him, his guitar, the the drums and the bass and yeah, no, that, and, and the vocals. That's, that's, but that's a lot like a jazz album. I'm talking about like Queen. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Night at the Opera. Yeah, let me see if I can do that directed two track. That, that could be fun. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, it, to go back to the whole modern stereo Pink Floyd, you know, I mean, Dark Side of the Moon, you can never record that directed two track. I'm still looking for that 30th anniversary one you did at a semi reasonable price, like <laughs> like below like $200 or something. It's that's a very coveted uh, recording that you did. Yeah. Um, well, thanks. I was uh, that's the only time I ever got to collaborate with Doug Sachs, who was an idol of mine uh, prior to even getting in the biz. And, uh, and uh, it was very fun. We, we we had a great time working on that together. Well, we, we talked about that uh, last time we talked. And yeah, and I've looked into it since. And everyone's like, oh, this is the one. And I'm like, yep, 
That's that's the one. And it's and obviously it's a very different skill set for you to use as opposed to dealing with two tracks. I mean, here you're trying to like equalize the or, or get the right volume for the right the, the bells going off. That's such a you know cinematic mix. Exactly. It's it's that's a tough one to cut, even, you know, let alone I'm, I know everything, you know, I've, I've read a lot about what went into the recording and it was a pretty crazy thing. You should have this room where you have every single record you've ever mastered. You'd have to have like a whole addition to your house if you had that, but it would be a pretty awesome thing because you did all this work. They should give you one for every single one you do. That's what I see. Right. Well, you know, it's funny because somebody said, you know, I went to your Discogs and you got 2,500 tiles on there. And I said, uh, I got news for you. That's scratching the surface. You know, I said, when you consider that I'm doing, I was doing 300 titles a year, you can see how, you know, pretty quickly in 50 years. Right. <laughs> I've done a hell of a lot more than 2,500 records. Does the mastering you're doing on the classics differ from the ones you're doing on the tone poet? Well, I don't have Joe Harley's input, but you know, we're, we're pretty attuned to these things. So I, I certainly don't want to underplay Joe's involvement because it's, it's huge, but uh, that's, that's the main difference other than the fact that, yeah, it's a little cheaper addition as far as the, the jacketing and everything. And the fact that they're pressed at optimal in Germany instead of at RTI. So, um, so yeah, they're, they're, they're a little more, um, it's not, not a bargain line, but they're, you know, a little less elite. I don't know. Is that an acceptable right. word? <laughs> yeah. But they're still AAA and they're still mastered by you. And, uh, yeah. well, they don't have all the cool inside photos and, but yes, they're, they're, they're AAA mastered by me. Yeah. I mean, does it take longer for you to master a tone poet record than a classic spec record? No, we usually do two titles a day, and that's what I'm doing on on both classics and tone poets. Joe and I get together and we 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 he block books out two days, and so we do four titles in two days. So um, Joe does the tone poets with you. Joe does all the tone poets. Yeah. Okay. Everyone he's been there for shooting video, which he puts up on Instagram. Nice little, little short thing, you know. But even before the whole quote unquote, well, let's just say the debacle, I won't mention any names. Uh, he was putting those videos up to kind of show that we're all analog cutting from the tape. Right. Yeah. We could talk about the debacle if you want. No, but, uh... I, I, think I, really, <laughs> I, I really, you know, I like those guys. Uh, I'm not thrilled with everything that they put out, but they've done a lot of, a lot of great work. And, um, you know, I just, I want to see the whole thing go away. I mean, they, you know, it was a lack of transparency. That was the whole problem there. Listener note: We're just referring to mobile fidelity and some of the some of the the difficulties they ran into when it was uh, revealed that there were digital elements to some of their processes on one step uh, recordings. End of end of note. Does does having a digital step actually help at any point? I mean, does that make sense, or it does? Is there is there always something that's negative about having a digital element in there? Uh, I would say there's always something negative about that. That having been said, um, if you use 24192 or you use, you know, the four times oversampling DSD, which they're using, the differences are really minimal. Minimal. I would always prefer to cut from the analog tape, but I don't have a real problem with cutting from high res digital if that's what they send me. You know, uh, I would always ask for the analog if I can get it, but um, yeah, I, 
the, the, the main degradation in the whole analog versus digital thing was back when people were cutting from CDs and they were doing right. that for years. Uh, oh, and one other really important point about what MoFi was doing is uh, that's the only way they could get the stuff from, from uh, Sony because they wouldn't send the master tapes out to the West Coast. So they had to go back and make tape copies in New York or digital, and they decided that the, the analog was adding more degradation than the digital, which I don't dispute. I don't dispute. I mean, there's always a change making a copy to anything, but in some cases, it might actually sound better if you can't have the master to have a digital copy of it than an analog copy of it. Now, that'll get me in trouble with some of the people. Well, and it's not always the case. It varies depending on the material and the machines used and the digital converters used and you know all of these things. Is, is one of the elements also that you can only get so many, again, I'm going to start using terms that I don't know that well, but like that the stampers can't be used that many times if you're just going all analog, but if you have some if digital process that enables you to do more copies without any degradation, is that, no, that, is that? That wouldn't change that at all. But I think what you're talking about is on the one steps, they only press, is it 500 or a thousand? I can't remember from each stamper. It, I think yeah. they were saying 500. What, no, it's a, it's a thousand because he was talking about how it was going to take 40 passes to do 40,000 records on on Thriller. Right. So, um, e yes, I can understand that a label would not want their original master tape run 40 times. I mean, that's that's a lot of wear and tear. So uh, in that case, I, I, I couldn't see any other. The, the only thing they could have done was make an analog copy instead of making the high res digital. Right. And then you're still doing a copy of a copy. So that's not as quite as direct. So, right. But, you know, if you want to put it out as a one step, that's what you got to do. That, that's what makes it one step. Right. Did you have a copy? That's a two step. No. Well, what makes it a one step is, is that they plate the lacquer and the part that they pull off of the lacquer is what they press from. So there's no mother. The mother right. would make it a two-step and then pulling a stamper from the mother makes that makes the three step. Got it. Got it. Um how much of a difference to you does to you does it make where the record is pressed? Like if the if the if the lacquer goes from you to you know Czechoslovakia or Germany as opposed to you know somewhere else in the LA area, how much of a difference does that make? Well, there's a number of factors there. Um, the lacquer should be processed as soon as possible, which means it's going to get processed a little bit longer after it was cut if it goes to Europe, you know, because about, you know, it takes about three days to get to Europe, um, you know, because they're going to arrive actually late afternoon, not early morning. And so they're not going to get processed till the day after that. So it's like two days plus a day. So it's three days. Versus on the Tone Poets, we actually send the lacquers to, to Doran Sauerbeer, the processing guy at RTI, um, first overnight. So he has them, you know, we're finished cutting at four in the afternoon. He has them 830 the next morning and he's putting them in the bath. So I, that does make a difference. Also, every pressing plant is different. Um, presses are different. The vinyl they're using is different. Um, there's, there's a million and one things that can change from plant to plant. And it does make a difference. And, uh, we, you know, we have our preferences. Uh, uh, I, RTI was the only plant I would consider for doing my record. What, what is it that happens to the lacquer if it takes three days to press it up? Is it just the material is 
solidifying in some way or just changing? Yeah, it's well, <laughs> what happens is it, people don't believe this, but but, you know, a lacquer disc, it's an aluminum substrate, but it's actually coated with real honest to God lacquer. I mean, it's lacquer, cellulose nitrate with some additives, but, but, you know, it's basically lacquer and lacquer is a soft material. And like most plastic type materials, it's cellulose nitrate, right? It wants to go back to its original uncut shape. So the groove actually modifies slightly, you know, after it's cut. So you lose a little bit of extreme top end. You lose a little bit of very low resolution, low level resolution, um, the longer it sits, if it's processed right away, it's, it's ideal. Yeah. Now there's always discussion on the, like the vinyl me please boards about, you know, when the classics are being cut at, uh, you know, RTI versus GZ. And when they go to GZ, which is in Czechoslovakia, there's always this sense of, uh, cause the classics are the black vinyl sort of jazz soul blues uh-huh. releases. They do that are, that are almost all triple a now. I think they're all triple a at this point. Okay. Um, but they were doing some of them at RTI and then they're doing some of them at GZ. And right. whenever, whenever they say the next ones are at GZ, everyone goes, Oh, cause they want them at RTI. Cause they know that the RTI. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of GZ. Um, they're probably my least favorite plant in Europe. It seems whatever. like they do a very huge volume. They do. Then you're also doing stuff for um, jazz dispensary and craft. Yes. So is, I don't that- know. I don't know jazz dispensary. I've never mastered a title for jazz dispensary. That's just what they label it or who it's for. Right. But it, for me, it all comes through Concord craft. So I never know, like even on the violently Please things, uh, those were those, I believe almost all of those came through Concord and craft. Uh, maybe not thin Lizzie, but yeah. 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 No, they, yeah. So those are all craft records. I guess it's their special imprint for this jazz series they're doing. They right. tend to be these kind of seventies, early seventies, mid seventies. Um, but they, it definitely is, you know, Kevin Gray, triple a, right. um, you know, Idris Muhammad, uh, peace and love. They, That's all from original master tapes. I can, I can. I can oh, it sounds fantastic. It sounds like it sounds fantastic. So, yeah. so there were four that Vinyl Me Please did, which was the second, go the second go around that they'd done so they had was, uh, Jack Jeanette, one of those that might have been the first group i'm not sure i don't know what the, the first there were five the first time they had like heavy acts by david axel yeah. yeah 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 um it, idris muhammad uh black rhythm revolution yep and um and then they had another I had one just cut new lacquers on those for some reason something got messed up mother's mother got damaged or something i don't know oh. yeah i just read so, those, those four titles i just remastered like in the last two weeks <laughs> So yeah, Gary Bart's uh, Shadow Dew was one of right. the, the ones right. they just had. Um, Bayette, uh, yeah, that album as well. So and yeah. then and then and then there's stuff that just Jazz Dispensary puts out that is not part of that, and they're not as pricey and colored vinyl and fancy packages. And that's right. like like Johnny Hammond Gears was one uh-huh. that I just sort of took a flyer on because it sounded cool. It's <laughs> like sort of pre-disco. Um, I so, was. A- Impressed and surprised by a lot of those titles. I had not heard them before. And um, you put on the tape and kind of go, wow, it sounds great. <laughs> so is there any sort of characteristic to that kind of early mid seventies, those early mid seventies recordings that, I mean, obviously it's not your two, your two track direct, uh, you know, Rudy Van Gelder recording, but they sound pretty good anyway. Like what's, yeah. what's going on there that makes them sound like they sound. Um. Boy, uh, recorded and mixed in good studios. I, I guess that's by, by good engineers. Um, yeah, it, you know, I have this thing about how 
how rock and roll died when 24 track came out. Um, the stuff that was recorded 16 track, which would be up through like 72, 73, in some cases, 74 to me, always sound better than the stuff that's done later 24 track because the track width got narrower and then you had to have noise reduction on every channel and it just added a whole, bu- and, and then to, to mix it, you normally had to have automation on your board, which meant VCAs because you know, you can't mix 24 channels with two hands you know, normally. Um, so anyway, um, so if they were done 16 track, that, that'd be another reason why they would sound better. I think. Interesting. Yeah. Some of the later seven, I never know on the later 70s stuff, if it doesn't sound as good because of how it's recorded or just because people were using more synthesizers and there's just there's kind that. of more, there's just sort of less organic instrumentation in the first place. And, uh-huh. and it's, it's kind of all fizzy. <laughs> it's yeah. Fizzy, I don't know but... whoever decided the ARP 2500 uh, was a great device, but uh, <laughs> that, that prog rock really assaulted us with that stuff uh, back in the mid seventies. Yeah, like the Moog synthesizer stuff early on still sounds pretty cool. But then when you get into those other and then when you get into like the DX7s in the early 80s, that's really brutal. Oh, and the drum machines. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Starting with Mattel. (laughs) And the the Lynn drum sound. Oh, yeah. Um, And and also I've I've picked up a few from a small label intervention that you've worked with, too. Uh, That's Shane Bittner. Yeah, they have a version of uh, Joe Jackson's Night and Day that sounds terrific like i never i put I, I picked that one up and i and i put it on and i just never sort of noticed the percussion jumping out of that like like from track to track like what a percussive record that is that's an amazing record yeah i'm a big joe jackson fan but i i love that title yeah i got that and look sharp um uh-huh. and i'll have to wait for them to repress i'm the man i guess i did not get the night and day one which maybe i should i good too have you heard the live one i have not no okay that was also good I saw him live this year. I'd actually never seen him, which was crazy because I'm pretty up on that era and I, I liked him at the time and I just had uh-huh. somehow never seen him. It sounded, still sounded great. Um, and uh, what else? There was Dillard and Clark record I got. Uh, yeah. Gene Clark, White Light. Uh-huh. Uh, those are also just like really warm sounding records and just like a nice presence. Great, master it. tapes recorded at A&M, as I recall. I don't know. Yeah, sure. I think but you're yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, I put yeah, Shane, I, Shane is a real perfectionist and uh, he's another guy kind of like Joe Harley. I, I, I really enjoy working with him. He's very cool. Yeah, I pick, I found the Dillard and Clark record at a record. Con- I went to like the first record convention in like 20 years for myself. Like I, there was one and I was like, oh, OK, I'm going to go to that. And I found this copy of the the fantastic uh, adventures of Dillard, Dillard uh-huh. and Clark. I'll probably misquote it now. Um, and it sounded really good. It's a little crackly. And I thought, OK, I'm going to I have to get the the, the Kevin Gray uh intervention version and and it's it does have like this extra you know it sort of proves your point that you're saying that like if you sort of take the stuff and put it through the equipment that you have created and set up in your um your studio there is going to be a boost to the original aside from the fact that there's also some wear and tear to the original Um, but just like sort of the warmth of the mid-range and the bass and and everything else it really feels like you're in the room with these guys I'm, i'm happy to hear that they they, they sounded good to me when I cut them. <laughs> you know, I, another one that I, that, that I picked up from you that uh, sort of was a coveted uh, Kevin Gray cut was the version of Joni Mitchell's blue and the ones in the stores now, a few years later, are the Bernie Grunman one. Um, uh-huh. And then there's like the, the blue vinyl or the clear vinyl and all of that thing. What is the reason in general 
that companies will put out so many different masters of the same album? I can't answer that. Uh, I mean, yeah, there are albums that I have mastered now five times for five different companies. Um, and God only knows. <laughs> but is, is there like a shelf life to one master where you just need to redo it? Like you need to redo the lacquer because, you know, it's been a few years or is it more just like, hey, let's just see what let's see what happens if well, we just have them do it again. It's usually different labels licensing it. But the Joni Mitchell, I mean, she's Warner Brothers Rhino every single time, I would think. Uh, I know. I think DCC put out one of blue, um, or maybe it never got released, but we got it. Uh, I guess Chad hasn't done it. So yeah, maybe you're right in that case. Um, that would, that would be Rhino. Cause she was electro, right. Or she was, what label was she on? She was, she was, asylum. she was asylum yeah. later, but I think yeah. blue. Well, that's, that, that's, that's all under the Warner. Music. Yeah, I mean they've been putting it all out now. So yeah, um, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that record personally. It's just me. I mean, I, I don't care for Joni's vibrato. It kind of drives me up the wall. <laughs> so, when she, so when she's singing up tempo, I mean, I I love two albums. I love uh, Court Court and Spark and uh, the Hissing of Summer Lawns. But you know, that's just me. I just picked up the Hissing of Summer Lawns at that same record convention. I'd never owned it. And I found a pristine copy for $10 and it's great. I'd never, I'd never had it. I actually cut that record originally back in the day. No wonder it sounds so good. <laughs> that was Prince's favorite Joni Mitchell album and Prince yeah. was a big Joni Mitchell fan. It's, it's an interesting story about it, but um, that song was written about Jose Feliciano and, and his relationship to his wife, Jenna, whatever her name was. And uh, she was a character. So, so if I pull out my copy of that, would I find, uh, you know, a KPG in the. No, uh, when I worked at Artisan, none of the engineers, you know, Bob McLeod, who owned the company, didn't want anybody putting their initials in the dead wax. So we didn't do it. Um, sometimes we would get credited on the back of the record, but that would be about it. What is your thought on like surround sound or quad or any of these other things or, or any of those, you know, improvements or things that you work with? Not, uh, I have zero interest in that, uh, you know, other than for videos, you know, for, for movies, that makes great sense for music. You know, I mean, yeah, it kind of a, on a live album, it kind of immerses you in the crowd a little bit more, but you know, just to have guitars coming out of each speaker and stuff like that. It's just, I don't, you know, I don't get it. I don't get it. I never have going back to when they called it quad, you know, back in the early seventies. Right. You never, you never set up with, you know, four speakers in a room just to get oh, yeah. stuff coming out behind yeah. you. Or... Well, my, my former business partner, the guy who designed most of the electronics that I'm using in my cutting system. Um, he had a, he had a quad set up with four JBL studio monitors, you know, uh, back shortly after I met him. Well, six years after I met him, I guess he put that together. Um, and you know, he got really into quad for about a year and then it, it was kind of a passing fad. Do you think for just listening to music, two speakers is the way to go? It's what I like. Can't speak for anybody else or, or, you know, I mean, uh, okay. I heard one surround sound that I loved and, and, and I'm, you know, listening in surround and that was the video that came out for, um, was it magical mystery tour? Yellow Submarine. Oh, that's a better movie than Magical Mystery Tour. Not only that, but it, it was just great sound. I didn't want to misguide you on the sound because that, that was the one I thought the surround mix on it was just fabulous. 
the whole quad thing for me is just interesting that there are certain albums that have come out where the quad mix was different. And so listening to it on your two speakers, you'll hear like guitar parts that weren't on the regular record for some reason. Right. Like can't buy, can't buy a thrill or something like that. But uh-huh. a lot of people listen to music on their AirPods and their you know headphones. I'll, I'll listen a little bit if I'm like taking a walk or something like that, but mostly for me, my enjoyment of music is coming out of speakers. Mm-hmm. Does it make a difference in the mastering or anything else if people are consuming it through their you know earphones as opposed to or earbuds as opposed to just having to come out of speakers set the proper distance apart yeah it does uh, i've never been a big fan of headphones for the reasons you're describing um there are devices that can take the sound that's fed to a headphone and make it sound like it's kind of coming from in front of you i don't know if you've heard some of these devices no. so it sounds like it's coming from it, it gives, gives you a very wide thing but normally um headphones are just a little too left right for me you know i like the music sort of hitting me in the chest you don't get that with headphones right agreed so anything anything coming up that i should we should know about my record is uh gonna be out officially in january Kristen Edkins. Yeah. Oh yeah. So Kristen Edkins. I think you were working on this when, when I was out there, it's been a year. Never did I guess that it was going to take this long to get it out. Um, and it was all mostly the jackets that have really slowed the whole process up. And I had no idea that jackets were taking as long to get printed and fabricated as records to get pressed. I only knew about the pressing part of it. Right. Everyone knows how backed up the pressing plants are. Oh yeah. But the, but the jacket, you know, if you want tip on jackets, 38 weeks, you know? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and I did, and I do, and I, and, and it's, yeah, they did a beautiful job. When is it available? I, I want to January, January through, through the big three, you know, acoustic sounds and music direct and elusive disc. Okay. Your pick. <laughs> All right. And, and what, and what labels it on? It's my record label and I'm just calling it coherent records. Okay. I just finished and approved a video with a guy named Ben Williams. Ben has done a lot of stuff for Chad Kassam um, and did a couple of things over at my place when we man- mastered the Beach Boys and, and a couple of other things. Um, but anyway, he uh, did a, just a really, really nice video. It's only 17 minutes long about me and the idea of, you know, recording all valve, uh, direct to two track and, and then cutting it all valve and just that whole story. And then a little bit about the record itself. And, um, and anyway, that's, I'm going to get that up on social media, hopefully very, very soon. I'll put it up on YouTube and put links to it, you know, like on my coherent Facebook page and, you know, anywhere else, anybody who wants to link to it, got high hopes for the the first release. That's great. Are you recording anyone else in the meantime? I have, uh, well, we're setting up, I I don't want to talk about it quite yet, but yeah, we've got a really big album coming out or, or, or going into production in uh, February. We're going to record it, um, with a known several known artists, uh, as, as one record quartet. And, um, Real excited about that too. Oh, awesome. So are you looking at like a record a year on coherent records? I'd like to do two uh, over the next couple of years and then maybe get to the point where I can be doing three or four, you know, that would, that would be my goal. And then, yeah. And then just doing them directly through those, those big three that obviously there are known for, you know, stuff sounding great and people, people on acoustic sounds and, uh, you know, music direct certainly will know your name. Yeah, All all three know about it. Um, I haven't gotten commitments from them yet, but I I don't think I'll have any problem. Thanks so much, Kevin. Great talking. Take care, Mark. 
That's all for episode 65 of Carol Pop. Thanks once again to Kevin Gray for offering so many insights into how we listen to music and how he makes it sound as great as he can. Look for the release soon of saxophonist Kirsten Edkin's new album, Shapes and Sound. It was recorded by Gray at his Hackensteck West studio, and it'll be on Gray's new Coherent Records label. If you'd like to learn more about Gray's work, go to the Coherent Audio website. That's Coherent, C-O-H-E-A-R-E-N-T dot com. And be sure to look for the KPG in an album's Dead Wax to know you're listening to a Kevin Gray mastering job. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, a master in the analog and digital realms. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Caro Pop on Twitter at Caro Popcast. You can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Caro Pop website, caropop.com, for posts about music, movies, food, and also this Caro Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Caro Pop conversation. And if you're in the Chicago area, please come to our live Caro Pop conversation with David Pasquese on January 18th at the Club Space in Evanston. Go to evanstonspace.com. Thanks.